Alrighty. Instead of doing chapter 3 and chapter 4, as I started through this, there was a lot of material in chapter 3. So we're just going to do chapter 3. Then I'll do chapter 4 next week because I feel like there's just too much to put out there and then I can't imagine you guys cleaning that all in too. So we're going to stay with chapter 3 and try to focus some core attention on boundary problems so that we understand what they are. There are four basic categories of boundary problems. You know, it's, it's not uncommon to have a blend of them. Now you might say, what do you mean? What we're saying is there's four, there's four types of boundary problems where the lie is saying this and we are getting in the middle of something that's not healthy for us. Um, the more you understand the boundary issues that they're talking about, the more you could probably start tying it back to which of the false beliefs out of search significant it ties in with. So as we start to go through this, these boundary problems, I would encourage you to reflect on what were the four false beliefs and then maybe tie it in. Because if you know what your false belief is, you're going to know what your boundary problems tend to be. Because that's where we set our boundaries is out of that belief system that we grew up with that maybe was not challenged until we actually got saved at a later time in our life and we realized this is not healthy. This is not true. The Bible is telling me something different. So as we go through these boundary problems, we're going to give them names. Okay. Everything they do in books is to give it a, a concrete name so you can relate to it. But when you think about how it happens, it's not really anything you can see, is it? You just all of a sudden feel very uncomfortable and you go, why do I feel uncomfortable with this situation I'm in right now? Something's not right. Because I can't see it. I can't say, hey, there's Aaron, hey, there's Linda, there's Sue. I can't do that. But I can start to understand and give certain situations a name and say, you know what? That sounds like compliant behavior. Let's do a little research in the scriptures to make sure I'm not doing this just because I don't want to have that person not like me anymore. Okay? So, let's start with the first one. The first one they cover in the book is called the compliance. They are the individuals who are saying yes to the bad. Compliance are the individuals who say yes to the bad. So, how does this get started? I'm going to just make one reflective statement here in, in, the, in the PowerPoint. As parents, sometimes we make the mistake of telling our children that saying no is unacceptable out of our need to control them. Don't tell me no. You know, we, that's how we do it. Don't tell me no. But if you carry that over into everything else where it's the old finger up and mom's telling you to sit down, after a while... you that child has started to form, I have to sit down when mom goes. <laughs> so we, we set them up for this pattern of behavior. So the next person that comes along, like the teacher, <laughs> the finger goes up. And they're like, okay, when mom does that, I need to stop. That's not bad. But if that pattern continues, they can become the ones who, when other people do the same thing with them, that they actually don't say no, and they should. So we have to be careful what we're teaching our children, that we're not teaching them an all-or-nothing principle. Children need to be taught the appropriate use of boundaries in order to protect themselves later in life. You know, one that we probably use a lot is the, is the stranger danger thing. You know, mom can pick you up, dad can pick you up, grandma and grandpa can pick you up, but if it's a stranger, he should not be picking you up. And if he tries, you, you scream out, stranger, stranger. Okay, that's not a bad pattern, but I think what we need to look at is what else do we need to teach them 
that's kind of the extreme. I don't want my child st- taken. I don't want my child hurt. But what other patterns do I need to teach them about relationships with other children, with other adults? Am I actively trying to help these individuals? Now, we could get into another whole conversation that would probably be a totally different lesson. That is, what about children who are from one-parent homes? What about children who have had multiple parents? And it's like, what are the boundaries? It's kind of sad because we have a godchild that we work with. And she has a mother and father right now who are not married. The father and the mother have a child together. The mother has a child to another man. That man has two children to another woman. She has two children to another man. So try to help a child understand those boundaries. If you don't have a strong parent explaining that and processing it with them, when they get older, it's going to come out in the form of, hey, whatever. (laughs) If I'm at your house, I'm your family. If I'm at that house, I'm their family. So they don't have a sense of boundaries necessarily in themselves. So it's not that you can't form the right boundaries. They need to be taught. You need to teach your boundaries, your children those boundaries. Compliant people have blurred and unclear boundaries. They give in to demands and needs of others. They give in to the demands and needs of others. Their boundaries are blurred and unclear. And I'm going to just go into the next point because it kind of ties in with it. Compliance are chameleons. Compliance are chameleons. They adjust to the boundaries of whomever they are with. Now, we'll put those two both together. Somebody who doesn't know how to say no will continue to take on, as we saw in chapter 1 with Sherry. She couldn't say no to anybody, so she had different expectations from four different people that all needed to be done within the next 24 hours. That is not healthy for anybody. Now, you start to tie that into a little bit more intense relationships or intimate relationships, and it gets really confusing, such as parenting or meeting your spouse's needs. Um, it becomes very difficult, and what we end up seeing is a compliant person then ends up somewhere along the line dealing with things like depression. Why? Because they've got all this anger, but they can't allow themselves to feel angry because they don't want anybody not to like them. They have to be on their best behavior. <clears throat> Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of your life. We need to not only teach our children, but we ourselves need to make sure that our boundaries are protecting us because the scriptures tell us our heart, where the Holy Spirit works in our lives, is the wellspring of life. That is where your joy comes from. If you're letting the things of the world and relationships crowd you in, it's kind of hard to have a wellspring where you feel joy. You tend to feel kind of miserable. And so you don't look at it as a, as a wellspring of life. You look at it as dying. I can't take this anymore. Compliant people have many fears. Fears of hurting others. Fear of abandonment. Fear of rejection. Fear of being made fun of. Shame. Compliant people operate out of a need to make sure that nobody knows who they really are, so they just adapt to everybody they're with. 1 Corinthians 8, 7 tells us, but not everyone knows this. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they, they think of it as having been sacrificed to 
idols, and since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. What he's trying to say is we need to be aware of the boundaries around us and what offends people and what doesn't offend people. If you're with somebody who's a new believer, they not, may not be able to understand why you're having a glass of wine or why you're eating at a certain place. Just be sensitive to that. Boundaries are something that I need to be um, not just assessing my boundaries, but I need to be assessing other people's boundaries because what I do or what I say may affect them in a negative way. It may create blurred and unclear boundaries for them. It may create an environment where they don't know for sure, are we on the same page? I mean, that's what they're going to be thinking. So we need to be making sure that as we look forward and as we develop our boundaries, as we develop our children's boundary, that they're clear. Some boundaries are situational, but you can teach those situations. Compliant people try to avoid feeling guilty at all costs, even to their own detriment. For instance, the person who uh, came out of a culture where they sacrificed animals uh, for as part of their ritual and then they ate the meat, um, they're going to have a, a little bit different boundary than what you are when you know that that has nothing to do with whether you're godly or not. You know, meat is meat, but to them, they're the ones right now that has the fears. They have the they have the the blurred and unclear boundary of is this really right? So you may be strong in your boundaries, but you need to be careful that your boundaries don't become a little bit forceful on the other bound on the other person's boundaries. These do get a little bit confusing because we're going to be talking about them in general, but they can cross over as we'll talk a little bit later. Sometimes you're going to have a blend of more than one boundary, depending on the situation you're in. So that's the compliance. Now let's look at the avoidance. <clears throat> the avoidant people have trouble saying no to the good. So it's the opposite of compliant. They have trouble saying no to the good. Avoidant people are unable or unwilling to ask for help, to recognize their own needs, or to let others in. Oftentimes, we'll refer to these people as martyrs. You know, they'll, they just kind of become the doormat. You know, whatever. They are unable or unwilling to ask for help because that will appear as some form of weakness. Avoidant people withdraw when they are in need and sometimes isolate. You know, sometimes when you're around people and they get quiet and they pull away, your first thought is, did I do something to hurt them? You may not have done anything to hurt them, what may be happening is in the avoidance person's mind, they are the only ones who know what the real issues are, and nobody knows when they're stepping on those toes or actually hurting those, you know, causing hurt there. So by being totally isolated and in themselves and all alone, it's they're very, what's the word I'm looking for, reactive? They're very reactive. So they may just pull back, and you'll notice right away there's a change in their personality. What's going on here? Why are they... They seem like they're sulking, maybe. Did I say something or do something? And in reality, they actually may be hurting and want to talk about it, but they don't feel that that's normal. They don't feel they should talk about it. They get real quiet and pull with back within themselves. At the heart of their struggle is the confusion of boundaries as walls. When they hurt, for some reason, they don't see that they need to reach out. They, need, they see it as, i got to get deeper into my into my walls. I need to get deeper into my corner so that nobody knows I'm hurting. 
If I get far enough in, nobody's going to know what it is. But in all reality, the opposite is true. You see, hey, they've totally pulled back. What's going on here? Obviously, they're hurt about something. I don't know what it is, but they're hurt about something. If you approach them, depending on how strong your relationship with, the, with them is, they may or may not actually open up to you. The usual response you hear from avoidance is, I'm, I'm fine. That's what you hear. I'm fine. That's fine. Okay. They don't want to deal with anything. Underneath, though, there's a lot of insecurity. There's hurt. But the theory is, if I start talking about it, you haven't got time to stop the flood. So they just keep it bottled. Boundaries are supposed to be are supposed to breathe, to be like fences with gates that allow the good in and take the bad out. Boundaries are meant to have this breathing capability. Like when you breathe in, you breathe in the good air, you push out the bad air. As you live life, you continue to do that. Boundaries were meant to be like that. They're meant to be such a, a, a although they're invisible, they're, they're meant to be such that when people will hurt you, it's only right to stop and say, no, wait a minute, what's going on here? So it needs to be one of those things that I stop, I assess, and I look at what's going on. Did they intentionally try to hurt me? Or maybe they just said something and they meant nothing by it and I'm being too sensitive. So you have to have that processing. That's a healthy boundary. Have that processing of what's in my yard, what's not in my yard. What do I need to get out because it's starting to stink? Or what do I need to put in to actually do some healing? God allows us the freedom to have boundaries with him. To let him in or not let him in. We're going to see this in Revelation 3. Revelations 3.20 Here I stand, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. That statement alone makes it very clear. God never forces himself on you. He's knocking. He wants to be in your life. You have a free will. He allows you to choose. He created a system of good and evil. He created a system with law and order, of right and wrong. Our choices are what bring on us the negative consequences, not God. Our choices are what bring in the harm and the pain. He does not force himself. Now, he does have discipline. He does cause the Holy Spirit to make you feel guilty when you, when you sin as a believer. But he's not going to force himself. You still have the choice to choose to continue in sin. And if you do, the consequences will be basically what he created from the beginning. If you live this life, this will happen. If you live this life, this is what will happen. If you choose to sin and be immoral, you're going to go to hell. If you choose to give your life to Christ and live for him, you will go to heaven. Somewhere in the middle there, sometimes that gets a little blurry. But the real point is that you have a relationship with him and that he's talking to you about that relationship. God has no interest in forcing himself on us, thereby violating our boundaries so that he can relate to us. The scriptures tell us that he yearns for us to look to him. He yearns for us to give him praise. He likes to hear our acts of worship. He wants to hear our testimony. 
He wants to allow us to allow Him to do a great work in our lives to take the damage that sin has done and make it something honoring to Him. Some people are both compliant and avoidant, which is known as reverse boundaries. So what do we mean by that? I'll let you get that term. Reverse boundaries. They are both compliant and avoidant. What that means is they have no boundaries where they're supposed to have boundaries and they have boundaries where they shouldn't have them. So it's the reverse of what we've been talking about. Looking at the good boundaries and trying to keep in our yards things that are going to be part of our wellspring of life and then move the things out. But someone who is both compliant and avoidant has a tendency to have it all reversed. They have all the good out and there's nothing but bad in, so that's why they feel overwhelmed. The third kind of boundaries are the controllers. Controllers do not respect others' boundaries. So let's, let's take a look at the controllers. Controllers have no respect for others' boundaries. To them, no is just a challenge to change the other person's perspective. Controllers like to argue. They like to debate. I can't believe you believe that. That's their challenge. Touche. Come on back at me. They like to argue. And you wonder to yourself at times when you're in that kind of relationship with someone like that, what are they getting out of this? We need to know who those people are that tend to take advantage of us and keep them out of our gates or set boundaries up when we're going to spend time with them. Controllers are perceived as bullies, manipulative, and aggressive. As we go through here, you'll probably start going in your mind, oh, I know who that is. Whoa, I know who that is. You've already got the person pe tagged and pegged, right? Controllers focus on controlling everyone else's lives, but do not take responsibility for their own. They expect other people to take care of their life for them, and that's why they are so forceful with other people. Controllers focus on controlling everybody else's lives, but do not take responsibility for their own. Aggressive controllers, there's basically two types of controllers. There's the aggressive controller, and there's the manipulative controller. We're going to talk about the aggressive controller first. Ag aggressive controllers are usually verbally abusive and sometimes physically abusive to others. More often than not, the one that you're going to see the most is the verbal, verbally aggressive individual. Most of the physically abusive stuff is usually isolated to just one or two people. You don't normally see the physical abuse, but you may be aware of it because that individual may have told you it went beyond the physical arguments and it went to shoving and pushing and maybe slapping. Someone not too long ago told me that they were with a controller, an aggressive controller, and because she did not agree with them, she began swatting at them, swatting at this other individual. And they were like, what is your problem? And she's like, you know better than that. And she's slapping her and hitting her. And She said, I just stepped back and went, oh. I think it was a, it was a wake-up call for her. How much do I really want to be in this relationship? I am not going to take that kind of behavior from someone. Aggressive controllers are usually verbally and sometimes physically abusive. They get, they attempt to get others to change to make the world, as they know it, fit 
their ideas, and their way of life. They attempt to get others to change, to make the world fit their ideas of the way of life should be. They're very forceful with what they believe is correct. They don't come right out and say necessarily, your belief is wrong. They're just so forceful with their belief that they leave you thinking, I must not be looking at this right. I mean, they were really strong about that. <clears throat> they don't normally do that at the onset of the relationship, though. At the onset of the relationship, they usually give a lot of flowery information about, hey, you look good, you look nice, they're buttering you up for the actual knife in the back because they're going to come back at you. That's the way aggressive controllers work. They don't come at you, I'm punching at you. No, they come at you, you look so nice, oh, that dress is, oh, man. You know, I don't know what guys do with it, aggressive controllers. They may say things like, um, you know, that's a hot-looking bike you got there. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I hear more girls talking about it than I do guys, but guys tend to be, they go quicker to the physical aggression if somebody doesn't believe. Where women, it tends to be more, a little bit more uh, manip manipulative. Peter was an example of an aggressor control, aggressive controller, and Jesus had to immediately confront Peter's violation of his boundaries. When Christ was telling the disciples that he was going to have to die and raise, be raised again a third time, Peter grabs Christ and pulls him aside and starts to rebuke him. Now, it doesn't tell us in Scripture what he is saying, but I'm assuming it's something like, What are you doing? You shouldn't be talking like this. You're the Messiah. And Christ's response was, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me. Look at, uh, I think it's Mark 8:33. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. Aggressive controllers only have in mind their own issues, their own MOs, what they are going to do. They do not have in mind the good of everybody in the situation. Manipulative controllers try to persuade people out of their boundaries. I just started to mention that, didn't I? Manipulative bond, uh, controllers try to persuade people out of their boundaries. Jacob would be a case in point. What did Jacob do? Jacob went to his father, dressed like his brother, and stole his blessing. Not only did he steal his blessing, he also stole his birthright. And that was the way Jacob was. In fact, Jacob, I believe they said in, in the, in the uh, original language, meant grabber of heel. In other words, trip people up, manipulator. It wasn't until Jacob was confronted by God himself in that in that dream and he held on to the angel would not let go and he says his hip uh, came out of the socket and he walked the rest of his life with a limp and from that point on Jacob was known differently he was known differently prior to that he was known as a manipulator when you come face to face with God and you get, you get honest with your behaviors it will change your life and who you are only when the manipulative controllers are confronted with their dishonesty will they be able to take responsibility for it, repent of it, and accept their own limits. 
only when a manipulative controller is confronted with the dishonesty. Basically, there's somebody strong enough, or maybe more than one person strong enough, needs to say to them, the only reason you're doing this is for your own selfish gain. None of this helps us. None of this is about God. It's all about you. Now expect to fight, because they're not going to take that. But as long as you stand your ground, you may actually be the person, through that honesty and through that possible uh, heated moment, help that person realize that you see who they really are, which is the one thing they don't want anybody to really know. Compliant and avoidant people can also be manipulative. They hope by being loving, they will receive love. You know, this, one is, this one is very convicting. Why do you love? Why do you love other people? Is it because you want something back for them? Why do you reach out the way you do? Is it about you or is it about them? That's challenging. Is it for the Lord? Is it really for the Lord? That's something we all have to iron out in our own minds and in our own lives. We have to sit and meditate about it. Lord, why am I doing this? 1 Corinthians 13, verse 5. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. When we're talking about true love, loving the way that Christ did, it's telling us what that love is not. He didn't die on the cross for himself. He didn't suffer pain and agony for himself. He did that for you and I. In George's message a few weeks ago, he was talking about, I'm realizing I have not suffered to the point of blood. I have not tried to deal with this sin in my life. I have not tried to deal with these boundary problems in my life to the point of what Christ did in the garden for my sin. It's a very convicting statement because I know there are times I have not. I think we all struggle with that, and that's part of being human, but that should not be an excuse not to try. The love of God desires from us, the love that God desires from us doesn't seek to re a return on investment. The love that God desires from us and what we give to him and what we give to others does not seek a return on the investment. I'm not loving just because I need you to love me back. I think another way that we've heard it many times over, love is giving, expecting nothing in return. That is true love. That is agape love. While controllers appear to get what they want in life, they are slaves to their appetites. They are slaves. Think about it. If my whole MO is to get people to take care of my life, is when my whole MO is to let people see how good I am and how great I am, and it only comes at a cost of them seeing it and them doing for me, when you take away those other people, what do I have? Nothing. Empty. In reality, controllers are lonely and isolated. 
because they know the only reason people spend time with them is because of their threats. It's because of them being the powerful one. The only comment I would make there is you can't terrorize or make others feel guilty and be loved by them at the same time. It doesn't work that way. Especially in marriage relationships, it will not work that way. The two do not go together. 1 John 4.18 There is no fear in love, but perfect love dries out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. I think that says it better than I just said it. There is no love or fear in, in, in true love, in God's love. Perfect love dries out fear. Fear is always talking about and thinking, that, why do I have fear? It's the fear of. Fear of what? Fear of being let down, fear of being abandoned, fear of being shamed. I have all these fears. Well, the, the basis of fear is that I'm going to be punished. That is not God's MO. That is not what he does. That's not his motive. His motive is to build you up and restore you, not to tear you down. The last group that we're going to talk about is non-responses. Non-responses are individuals that do not hear the needs of others. They do not pay attention to what your needs are. Boundaries are a way to describe your sphere of responsibility. We're going to go back for a moment and just rehearse what it is. Boundaries are a way of describing your sphere, your world, of responsibility. What you are responsible for, what you are not responsible for. While we shouldn't take on the responsibility of others' feelings, attitudes, and behaviors, we do have certain responsibilities to others. If you read through the New Testament, Jesus continually talked to the disciples about loving one another. They'll know you by your love for one another. You know, he's trying to describe, describe a healthy love where people are giving, not because they want something back, but because it is a collective um, agreement to help individuals out in their, in, their, in their homes, in their church, in their community. They do it because they see the need. Non-responsives do not want to be involved in the need. They have a tendency to maybe um, totally avoid the need, or they may actually take advantage when they see somebody that's down and out. Non-responses have a lack of attention to loving another. They're the individuals who will come into church or work and they know somebody's over there crying and in, 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 in pain or hurting and they just turn around and go the other direction because they don't want to be bothered. <laughs> they know so-and-so just lost their mother, lost a child. So their way of dealing with it is they don't go up to them. They don't want to offer support. They don't want to offer condolences. I'm here, aren't I? I came to the viewing. That's a non-responsive. They'll come in, hey, did my job, got to leave. Come to church, put my money in a plate. Okay, Sunday's done. Start the week again. Those are non-responsives. They don't want to get involved. They don't want to be bothered. They don't want to be bogged down. I have a few verses that I want to go through. Ephesians 5, 28 and 33. 
In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. And in verse 33, should be one more there, I think. That is 33. Maybe we missed one. Okay. <laughs> I was looking there. So the th- <laughs> Somebody's got to keep me in trouble. Tra- <laughs> However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. It's two things here. Husbands are commanded to love their wife because that's not something that they normally think about is love. Men think about work. Just give me my job. What do you want me to do in the house? What's my honey-do list? Just, just give it to me. Don't expect me to figure this out. Just tell me what you want. Where women are to respect their husband and understand that, yes, he may not know how to love, but you can help him learn how to love. You can help him learn how to love. He is your husband. He is the one who's going to stand before God responsible for his household, according to the Scriptures. So how you treat him actually impacts you in the long run. And how you build him up. He, with all of his warts and his zits and everything else, you still have to help him look good, right? To put it bluntly. You have to help him look good. But he needs to love you even in your sin, even in your ugly moments. He's the only one that sees you without your makeup on, right? Just kidding. <laughs> you, there's Love is giving, expecting nothing in return. Some have the ability to love, some do not. They have to learn it. The ones who do have it need to demonstrate it. But in this situation where he's talking about the husband and wife, he's talking about what makes the unit. If the husband is non, a non-responder, those needs are going unmet. She needs him to love her. If she's the non-responder and not respecting him, he's got a void. If, you, if a man doesn't feel respected in his own house, there's going to be issues. Or the other way around. If the mother doesn't feel loved for what she does for him in the house, taking care of the children in the house, and probably a job. You, you know, it's one of those things you look at it, there's different perspective, but the two make a unit. We'll go to the next verse. Proverbs 3.27 says, Do not withhold good from those who deserve it when it is within your power to act. Very wise statement. Do not withhold good from those who deserve it when it was within your power to act. If I have the ability to say to someone and say, you know, you do such a good job when you sing that song, that is meant to happen in order to help them realize their boundaries. Yes, I can say you you know you did a great job, but she still needs to hear or he still needs to hear that in order to know that they connected. If you just walk out the doors and you don't say anything to each other on Sundays, this is going to be a humdrum church, let me tell you. We need to and you shouldn't be doing it to get a response back. It's talking about when the Holy Spirit stirs you and you you see an act that needs to be recognized, you should do it. You should recognize it. Do not withhold good. Next verse. Romans 12:18. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everybody. My mother used that verse a lot. Now I know why she did as I got older. 
Some neighbors are not the easiest ones to live by. But you still need to reach out. You still need to be peaceful in your interactions with them. Doesn't matter if he's an alcoholic, does not matter if he's a drunk or she's a drunk. Doesn't matter what sin they've done, ex-con, whatever, or present con, you still need to have to reach out. You still need to be at peace with them and try to help them to see God. We are responsible to care about and help within certain limits others whom God places in our lives. If you notice, we went from the very opening statement in this section saying non-respondents do not want anything that's going to bog them down. We've turned it around to talk a little bit about what God expects. He's saying you have a responsibility to care for those around you within certain limits. Those certain limits would be that it's not taking advantage of your own home. You, you have a responsibility as a believer to reach out to other believers and unsaved. How else are they going to know about Christ? How else are they going to learn what mature behavior is in Christ? if older, stronger Christians don't demonstrate it and reach out. Non-responses also fall into two categories. There are the ones with the critical spirits and those who are self-absorbed in their desires. Those who are critical and those who are self-absorbed in their desires. Philippians 2 tells us, Each of you should look not on your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Some people, especially with boundary problems, take that the wrong way. They think that I should be taking care of all these other people because God's given me. Well, that's partially true. What he's talking about is kind of an assessment tool. You need to reach out to others and not be focused on your own interests. In other words, when I'm making decisions of what's going to be in my yard and what's not going to be in my yard, it shouldn't be all about me, nor should it be all about them. It should be what is God doing in this situation. That's the appropriate focus in those boundaries. Controlling non-responses see others as responsible for their struggles and are on the, on the lookout for someone to take care of them. Controlling non-responsives. They don't want to be bothered about what it takes to make a life good. They're more interested in looking out for somebody who is a little bit of a rescuer, maybe. Somebody who's going to help them meet their needs. They don't want to put out the effort in relationships. Compliant avoidance search for someone to repair. That would be your enabler. The first one is your dependent one. The second one is your enabler. You're going to see this a lot in addictions. The two can make for a symbiotic relationship. In other words, people say, well, you know, they say it takes two. There's definitely two there. You know, and you look at the other individuals and, and their, their, their connection and their relationship just seems out of, kel- out of kelter. If you look at someone who has been in addictions, what you're going to find is they've either got a really good enabler who takes care of them or they've had many different enablers and it's been very painful, whether it's alcohol or drugs. Because first of all, when you're taking the drug and the alcohol, you are not able to take care of yourself. So you become totally dependent. You think that it's making you feel normal, 
But then the enabler says, oh, you shouldn't. Oh, come over here. Let's get, get you out of those clothes and takes care of them. They're the ones that when they puke up all over the kitchen floor, they clean it up. And they may grumble, but they do it time after time after time, all in the name of love. You know, in chapter 1, where they talk, the psychiatrist was talking to the, um, the parents of the kid who was, had an alcohol and drug problem, they're talking about how they've spent so much money on him. And when he was done, what did he say? You're the ones with the problems. You've created the environment where he can actually do this. You're letting him stay in your home while he goes out and blows all his money. You're the one paying for his education, and he's not really applying himself. It doesn't matter how many times you tell them that they need to pick it up and do something right until they come to the natural consequences of their behaviors. They're not going to change. We're going to finish up with two different aspects. They are not necessarily wrong type of boundaries, but if they are all or nothing boundaries, then they're wrong. One is functional boundaries refer to a person's ability to complete a task, project, and job. Functional boundaries. That means that I have boundaries that allow me to work through life. I look like I'm successful, and I look like I'm doing okay. Relational boundaries refer to the ability to speak truth to others with whom we, have, we are in relationships with. This person is very verbal. They can talk through, you know, through relationship problems. They can make things work. Case in point with these two types of issues, if they are all functional or all relational, would be Mary and Martha. Martha was working within functional boundaries. When Christ was coming to their home, her whole focus was get the meal ready, make sure the wine's ready, make sure this is ready, and she's gone about doing all this busy work, and she's getting angry and angry at Mary because Mary is doing what? She's in a relationship talking to Christ, listening to him. Now, what did Christ say about the situation? He said, Mary has chosen the better uh, boundary at this time because he had already told him he was going to die and that it was coming soon. She was choosing to spend that time with him and not worry about the food. What Christ was trying to say, there's a time and place for both. There's a time and place for both. There's a time to be you know, putting things together and there's a time where you need to sit still. And you need to meditate and you need to hear what Christ has to say. Many people have good functional boundaries but lack relational boundaries. And the reverse can be true. Many have relational boundaries but they do not have functional boundaries. Someone in a relational boundary doesn't want to do anything to make her life work. They want somebody else to do it. So they just focus on, oh, this is my son, this is my husband, and this is my dad. And They're all in about the relationships. But as far as working through the issues to make life work, they lack. Or the other way around. Somebody who's a workaholic, they do, 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 do. They have no relationships. Now that we'll be taking a look at the boundary problems, next week we're going to spend some time on Chapter 4 talking about how those boundaries develop and start looking at what we need to do and where we need to look at as far as changing those boundaries.